So I want to begin this morning with a question. How many of you have ever been to a mystery dinner? No? Okay, Matt has. Did it look something like this picture here where people were kind of dressed up and there's usually a murder that takes place and you try to figure out who the murderer is as you add up all the evidence? Well, usually there's an element in these type of things of who done it? Who done it? And there could be a number of suspects who had the motive to do it, who looked suspicious, who had the opportunity to do it. Now today, I want you to keep in mind a mystery dinner as we think about asking the question, who is it that framed our perception of God? And there's a number of suspects here. Now, the word God, of course, is pretty generic, isn't it? When we think of the term God, it can be construed in a number of different ways. But God, as we are most familiar with in the great religions of the world, most often see God as a personal agent of some sort that has a repertoire of traits and actions. And this picture of what God is like, initially, when you open the book of Genesis, is quite favorable. What we find is God walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And even when Adam and Eve move away from God, God comes looking and calling. But as we move deeper into the Old Testament, what we find is that God takes on a much darker perception. And there might be a number of different characters in the Old Testament that make this possible. When you think about your own perception of God, when you think about God beyond kind of this generic someone out there, and you begin to personalize it, what is God like? What does God mean to me? Well, you have been shaped by a number of different influences, usually by our culture, our family, our churches, or teachers. But probably the biggest factor in the way we portray God is out of the Bible itself. So Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, was once asked by someone who was thinking of becoming an atheist, he asked the question, can you recommend any books for me to read that might help me on my way? And Richard Dawkins said, yeah, the Bible. Because what you find in the Bible is a lot of strange stories. A lot of stories about if God was a human being, we would turn that person into protective services because of the way they endangered their children in some way. What are we to make of these portraits of God? They are odd. Uh, maybe it's just a product of evocative human imagination and situations. Maybe it was shaped by external influences like the exile. Maybe they got some things right, but they got some things wrong. You see, while the Israelites, the history of the Israelites is the primary narrative in the Old Testament, they understood Yahweh as the Almighty God, yet they often found many of his actions unsettling at best. And in the Bible, we have a record of groups of people and cultures that were shaped by influences 
that tainted the way they looked at God. So today, we might ask the question, who framed their perception of God? And here's what I'd like to do. You're at this mystery dinner, and there's a three-course meal that's going to be presented to you. And in this three-course meal, there are different aspects to this topic. One is misunderstanding the nature of God. Two is misrepresenting the will of God. And three, maturing in the love of God. So I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. Let's begin with the first one here by showing you a video. This video is from Rob Bell. Rob Bell, who was a pastor in Grand Rapids, Michigan for many, many years before he moved out to California to become an author and a speaker really worldwide. He likens this um, development of God sort of like the development of cars. You'll see what I mean. Watch. When I was 20, I drove an Oldsmobile. It was a silver four-door Delta 88, and it had a long bench seat across the front, and a feat of engineering genius. The rear license plate was on a hinge, and you had to pull it back in order to fill up the gas tank. We called it the sled. It was a magnificent automobile, and it served me well for those years. But they don't make Oldsmobiles anymore. I mean, they used to be popular, but the factories have shut down, and eventually the only ones left will be collector's items, relics of an era that has passed. Oldsmobile couldn't keep up with the times, and so it's become more and more something of the past, not the future. For them, not us. For then, not now. I tell you about the sled, because for a growing number of people in our modern world, God is a bit like Oldsmobiles. Things have changed. We have more information and technology than ever. We're interacting with a broader, more diverse range of people than ever. And the tribal God, the only one many people have ever heard of, appears more and more small and narrow and irrelevant, and in some cases just plain mean, and other times not that intelligent. Like my friend Kathy, who was at this event recently where she heard an influential Christian leader say, he doesn't think women should be allowed to teach and lead in faith communities. Kathy, who has two master's degrees, sat there stunned. Or my friend Gary, who he and his family visited a church on a recent Easter Sunday, only to hear a resurrection sermon about how all gay people are going to hell. And then my friend Michael just told me recently about hearing the leader of a large Christian organization say that if you don't believe that God made the world in a literal six days, then you have to get rid of the rest of the Bible as well because, you know, it doesn't matter what science says. This is a problem. And as a pastor over the last 20 years, what I've seen again and again is people with a growing sense that their spirituality is in some vital and yet mysterious way central to who they are as a person. And yet the dominant perceptions and conceptions and understandings of God they've encountered along the way aren't just failing them, but in many cases are causing harm. Is God going to be left behind like Oldsmobiles? I don't think so. Because I believe there are other ways, better ways of talking about God and understanding God. Because I believe God is with us and for us.
And I believe God is actually ahead of us, calling us and drawing us and inviting and pulling us all, every one of us, into a better future than we could ever imagine. So what is God like? This might be an interesting read for you. What we talk about when we talk about God by Rob Bell. That book has been out a while. That video actually was shot back in 2012, so it's 10 years old. And so he talked about the demise of Oldsmobile, right? But in recent years, all these commercials about Oldsmobile is this is not your father's Oldsmobile, right? And so they have new technology and they have this new attractive nature to the new cars. So human inquiry has led to many people asking, what is God like? But often what happens, there is a misunderstanding of the nature of God because of the times that people are stuck in. So you have a book here that is over 3,000 years old. Imagine that. 3,000 years old. And their understanding of God was limited to what they knew, what they were exposed to, and what superstitions they would carry with them, just like all of the people that lived in that era. So usually, people that lived as far back as uh, David and Isaiah and others before them would have a perspective of God that was couched within the belief of many gods, a pantheon of gods. The Israelites came to believe that there was one God that was above them all. That's why he's called God Almighty. Yahweh, as revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, And these ancient portraits are sort of like classic cars. In the sense, they were to be appreciated in the moment. But we know so much more now than they did back then. And so as we have developed as a civilization, what happens is sometimes the mystery of who God is gets stuck in a moment in time. And so if you try to draw an analogy of what God is like simply from turning to the Old Testament and 3,000-year-old text. I mean, depending on what passage you read, you can develop a portrait of God that sounds something like this. If you want a God of war, you can find it. If you want a God of peace, you can find it. If you want a compassionate God, you can find it. If you want a vindictive God, you can find it. If you want an egalitarian God, he's there. If you want an ethnocentric God, he's there. If you want a God that demands blood sacrifice, he's there. If you want a God that abolishes blood sacrifice, it's there. It just depends upon what passage you turn to, okay? So what do we do with this? If people get stuck in that moment, sort of like people that still think that that Delta 88 is the best thing that was ever created, well, then they're going to argue about all the new backup technology in the car. They're going to argue about a car that can actually park itself. Are you kidding me? Right? But simply because they loved that car, because maybe that was their first car, or maybe that's where 
an individual took his to-be wife out on dates or something. It has a nostalgia to it. What we find is we all carry, every one of us carry our own prejudice and personality into the text. Now, next week we're going to talk about the Bible a little bit more, about how do you reframe the Bible. You know, I've heard people say that every word in the Bible is true. Well, that's great, except every word in the Bible is a part of a sentence that you have to interpret, okay? And that demands understanding culture and context and all that type of thing. In the Old Testament, there's a conclusion, really, that God is rather transactional and retributive. If you will obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, you'll be cursed. Or that God's sort of go-to means of resolving conflict is to kill people. Have you ever thought it this way? So this God who met with Adam and Eve in the garden at the beginning of Genesis, by the time you get to Genesis chapter 6, he's going to wipe the whole mankind off the earth by a flood. Uh, okay, God, don't you have a little bit more patience than that? I mean, you're only six chapters into the book of Genesis, and all of a sudden, you're wanting to start over. Then there's those strange laws. You can eat some of these animals. You can't eat others. You can stone a rebellious teenage son, and you can sell your virgin daughter. All of that is in the Old Testament. So what we find is this God, who seems to micromanage things in the Old Testament, is a God sometimes that forms the way people perceive God even into this moment. And that's where you get to, secondly, misrepresenting the will of God. Sometimes when human beings stop reframing their understanding of God, their perception of God's will can be very dangerous sometimes. And this is true of any religion, not just Christianity, but it is especially true of religions that condone violence as a way of controlling people. And so Christian extremism sometimes speaks for God with breathtaking arrogance and sweeping authority and demands to impose their religious beliefs on everyone else. So here we are, we live in a democracy, and yet many times Christians demand that all schools, all public schools endorse Christianity as the one religion. Well, what happened to the idea that this is a place where all religions can be safe, right? So demands to control educational curriculum and all kinds of other things like that, this God of radical control can be a product that can be used by people. So look here, religious le leaders often make demands to impose their own religious beliefs on everyone else. And I think we have all run into that where people claim this is the truth and you have to obey it. If you don't, then you're outside the will of God. And it can be about anything, really. But Christian extremism sometimes gets stuck. And they have a misperception of God that can lead to the manipulation of the public arena. And so what we find is that there are some people that will re use religious cover for their own political agendas. And we need to be aware of that. And many of those things are 
are shaped by how they look at God, how they define God, and how they use the Scriptures. Number three, the controlling God of religious fundamentalism is wildly at odds with intuitive thoughts. That's what Rob Bell was saying. He was saying, we've moved beyond this. We know more. We know, understand that there are things that are completely different today than there was those thousands of years ago. So what holds us back? Fear. Usually it's fear that holds us back. Fear that, what if I'm wrong about moving on and reframing my understanding of God? Will God smite me? Will God judge me? Those type of things often control people. But how about we think about how God inevitably influences us in moments in our life? You've had them, I've had them, where you felt the presence of God. And you can't turn to a chapter or verse, but you know, you know God was there in that moment. Maybe it's in the loss of a loved one, or maybe it's in a crisis time, and you know that God showed up, and you trusted God in those moments, and that God didn't look anything like the one that was framed by some of these extremist religious uh, leaders. You know, the experience of God is something that it is sort of like the Grand Canyon, so several years ago, Esty and I had the opportunity to go to the Grand Canyon. You can't take in the whole Grand Canyon at one time. You can't. You can appreciate bits and pieces of it as you stand where you are. And that is the conundrum we have as human beings. We can understand God in the moment where we find ourselves. Yes, we get help from the Scriptures, but many times... We miss the bigger picture, and we don't move on to see the Grand Canyon from other viewpoints. Sometimes we confine and delimit and control our perspective. And what we find is, I think, is the deepest thing that prevents us from reframing this eternal, magnificent, all-powerful God is that we think that God is just like this room. So here we are in this sanctuary, and I have a Bible in the room. What we find is that we're in the room. You're on a pew, you're on a pew, you're on a pew, right? And this is sitting on a table here, and God is here, but He's sitting on this table. And so it's sort of like we think of God as just another thing in the universe. How about Instead of thinking about God as an object within the universe, God is like this sanctuary in which everything sits inside. That is a very freeing thing. The Scriptures tell us that God is spirit. And what we find is that the entirety of the universe sits within the person of God. I don't know how that works. But it's a very freeing thing because it's there that we live and move and have our being. Listen to the Apostle Paul. Acts chapter 17, he's talking to all kinds of religious leaders on Mars Hill. And this is what he says to them. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. 
From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone and the image made by human design and skill. So what happens is sometimes we misunderstand the nature of God because of where we are. Sometimes we misrepresent the will of God because it's to our advantage sometimes to keep that perspective alive. However, I think the call that God places upon all of us is to mature in love, to mature in the love of God. So we exist within the love of God. In Him we live and move and have our being, Paul just said in the book of Acts. But in John chapter 14, there's this passage that answers the question directly. So I read part of John in uh, the Scripture reading. But I want you to listen to this one. This one, I think you're familiar with. Jesus is with his disciples, and he's about ready to uh, depart. Uh, and, and he says, don't let your hearts be, be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I'm going. Now, think about that. Jesus makes the statement, you'll know where I'm going. And Thomas speaks up and says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so can you show us the way? And Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And then Philip, another disciple, speaks up, and this is the key. He says, Lord, show us the Father, show us God, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Do you want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying. Look at me. If you really want an accurate representation of what God is like, look at me. Jesus is the personification of what God would be like in the flesh. And that's the great victory of the incarnation that we celebrate during Christmas. So what we find is in these passages, it's moving us forward. And from the Old Testament into the Gospels, we see that there's this reframing of the understanding of God. And that can be the only way it can be because that's who we are as human beings. We're always in process, aren't we? We're always maturing. We're always gaining deeper insights. But Jesus is the ultimate picture of what God is like. So I have another video I want to show you, and then we'll wrap it up, and we're going to take communion today, uh, and then we'll close our service. Let's take a look. What is God like? Every one of us has an image of God that we hold in our hearts and minds. Some of us received our ideas of God through indoctrination in whatever religion we grew up in. Others of us developed our idea of God through life experiences. Believers and atheists alike often embrace or reject images of God that are toxic. These distortions of God need to be cleansed from our hearts because inevitably 
We mimic the God we imagine. Some notions of God are extremely harsh. God the tyrant king. God the punitive judge. God the abusive step-parent. God the mighty smiter. Others see God as someone they can manipulate, like a doting grandparent, the genie in a lantern, or the divine sugar daddy. On the other hand, some imagine God as a deadbeat dad, absent, delinquent, unsupportive and uncaring, the God who wasn't there when I needed him. In a more Christ-like God, we ask, if there is a God, what is he like? Scripture tells us that God is love, and specifically it says that if you want to see this God of love, you look at Jesus, God with skin, God incarnate. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen my Father. The Apostle Paul said, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. All the fullness of God was embodied in him. Hebrews 1 says Jesus perfectly mirrors God and is stamped with God's own nature. In a more Christ-like God, we'll look at Jesus' life, the way he treated people, the way he loved people. We look at the way he cared for those on the margins and looked after the abused. And also, we'll even see that he could face down the religious abusers and the spiritual bullies. At the same time, the clearest image of God comes into focus in Christ crucified. In a more Christ-like God, we ask, what does the cross show us about God? That God is love, self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love. Self-giving in that God has poured himself into our world as love incarnate. Radically forgiving because even when wicked men murdered him, he forgave them and co-suffering because he has chosen to experience the depths of the human condition, including suffering and death, and he overcame it all. And so we see that God is like Jesus, exactly like Jesus. God is Christ-like because Christ is God the Son. In a more Christ-like God, we're going to experience an achingly beautiful gospel. A gospel that does not say God is too righteous and holy to look on sinners, but if you turn to him, then he'll forgive you. Rather, we'll encounter the Christ-like God who has always loved you. The God revealed in Jesus is always with you, always for you, always in pursuit of you. God, the shepherd who goes down into the ditch to find the sheep tangled in the weeds. God, the father who runs to welcome the wayward child back home. God, the crucified Lord, who, while we were enemies, while we were sinners, while we were ignorant of him, reconciled us to himself. So I hope you'll join us in a more Christ-like God, a more beautiful gospel, as we discover the cruciform God, the cross-shaped God, who knows you, loves you, and wants you to know him. So that's another good read if you're interested, a more Christ-like God. <clears throat> Here's how I'd like to summarize before we come to our mystery dinner, communion. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There was never a time when God was not like Jesus. We have not always known that, but now we do. 
You see, a faith that doesn't encourage imagination and curiosity is often a faith that feels it is in a war and it needs to be in control and will struggle with liberation and love. I don't think any of us want a faith that has all the answers. We want a faith that keeps us open to love. And that's what Jesus does. You see, God is not a noun that demands to be defined. He is a verb that invites us to live and to love and to be what He has created us to be. God is not an item within the universe. Rather, He is the essence in which we live and move and have our being. So, I mentioned a moment ago about how we're going to take the Lord's table. Now, this is this Last Supper picture. And if you read John chapter 13, you'll know what they were talking about as Jesus was having dinner with them. In many ways, it's a mystery dinner because Jesus makes a statement that he's going to die. And they all begin to look at each other and try to figure out who done it. Who betrayed Jesus, right? If you read the text closely in John chapter 13, as he's with his disciples in the upper room, Jesus reaches out to Judas, who is ultimately the one who betrays Jesus and will lead to his arrest. But even there, you see the compassion of God taking a dip piece of bread and dipping it and offering it to Judas. I wonder if Judas would have been shaped by a better understanding of God, whether or not he would have backed off the betrayal of Jesus. We never will know. But what we do know is that when we come to the table, we take a piece of bread and we take the cup, and it's our opportunity to enter into this mysterious moment where we can't define God, I can't define God, but we get a sense that God is with us because the bread represents His body broken for us. The blood represents, the cup represents His blood, which is spilled for us to show us that God would rather die Himself in the human flesh than live without us. Join me in prayer as we get ready to take communion. Lord God, we come into Your presence today and we're asking that you will help us reframe some of our thinking about God. May it free us, Lord, and may it give us a bigger heart of love for other people. May it motivate us, Lord, to live a life of love. We say this often, Lord, that life is a gift and love is the point. Indeed, we come to the table and we look at this bread which represents the body of Jesus and this cup which represents His blood, and we are reminded that we have been given the gift of life, that the love that we are to mature in is the point of living with purpose. What is the purpose of life, Lord God, but to become better in loving and thus reflect Your very nature? We're thankful that God is love and God is spirit and God is light. And we're thankful for those moments that you allow us to see it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.